Good morning, everyone. I'm so, so happy to see all of you who are physically here gathered. And I'm also really thankful for all of you who've joined us online today. Um, it's good to be with you, Solano family and visitors. So welcome. I want to take a few, us few through. Mo uh, excuse me, I got to slow down. I want to take us through a few moments of reviewing the last few weeks of sermons to give us context for today's passage, which is Zechariah three. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just ask you to be here with us today. We know you are here, um, but lead, um, lead our thoughts our emotions. Speak through me, Lord. Help me only to say things that honor you and that are true to your word. Thank you for your love for us, and please just change us. Help our hearts to be soft and our ears to be open to whatever you have to say to us, Lord. We love you, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. So first, remember that God's people, the Israelites, had continually turned their backs on God, rebelling against him and ignoring his warnings and his calls to repentance and refusing to turn back to him. Thus, as he'd warned them many times, God gave them over to their enemies for a period of time. They had been in exile under the rule of the Babylonians, and their time of exile had finally come to an end. Cyrus the Great had united the Persians and the Medes, and he'd conquered Babylon in 539 BC. And a year later, in 538, he had allowed the people of Judah to return to their homeland and rebuild the temple. The people were back together now in their homeland, Judea, but it was much smaller than it was before. We read in the book of Ezra that Zechariah and Haggai had both been challenging the people to rebuild the temple and to look for the fulfillment of God's promises. The prophet Jeremiah had told the people that after their 70-year exile, God would return, restoring peace and his presence to a new temple, and he would bring his kingdom and the rule of the Messiah over all the nations. But now, they hadn't been living into their calling, and so life back in their land had been hard, and it seemed like none of the promises were going to come true. And so Zechariah comes on the scene trying to rally the people. God has sent Zechariah to get them moving. He's challenging them not to be like their ancestors, turning their backs on God. So week one, Andrew started off the series by emphasizing God's call for his people, including us, to return. In Zechariah 1.3, we read, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. We learned how the importance of the temple was rooted in the presence of the Lord. The temple is where the Lord was, and so that's why there was so much emphasis on the temple. The people had shown an unwillingness to pursue the presence of the Lord. So he reminded us to ask ourselves, what about us? Have we neglected to keep the Lord at the center of our lives? Have we neglected to return to him? God is always there waiting. He isn't the one who's moved away. Week two, Pastor Paul then brought us through the first vision in Zechariah 1-7, and he reminded us, God loves you, and it's all about receiving what God has done. His word still speaks to us today, and he helps us understand his word. So receive God's mercy. Week three, Andrew told us then, lift up your heads. He was teaching us that the second vision, through the second vision of the four horns and the craftsmen, the Israelites had been called back to rebuild what they had, in particular the temple, which meant the presence of God. Guys, worship is a force in battle. Think Joshua in the battle of Jericho, for example. So now in Zechariah's time, God is going to defeat those who have been tormenting Israel so that they can lift up their heads. And what about the horns and craftsmen and us? In the New Testament, we learn that the doorway into God's presence is Jesus. Jesus. 
The beast or challenge that you're facing is on a leash, meaning it's not outside of God's control. He's sovereign over the whole world and over Satan. So we must walk in his presence. The Lord will lift our downcast heads. And if we can hold up our heads in the presence of the Lord, before who else should we feel shame? Finally, last week, week four, Andrew took us through Zechariah chapter two, the third vision, and he exhorted us to align our thinking with God's thinking and prioritize his presence. God's kingdom is coming and it's glorious and it's inevitable. How does this change our mindset? We can get so wrapped up in the moment and we fail to see the big picture of what's really going on. Wrapping our heads around the reality of Revelation 21, where we find the description of the new heaven and the new earth and living in light of eternity changes everything. And if we want God's kingdom to expand in our spheres of influence, then we need to draw near God. So that brings us to this week. Today we're focusing on what God has to say to us in Zechariah 3. I think I got the best passage of all. Um, if you have a Bible, please open to the book of Zechariah. You'll find it's the second to last book in the Old Testament. So if you find Matthew, the first book in the New Testament, and go back a few pages, you'll get to Zechariah. And please turn to chapter 3. And let's stand for the reading of God's word. God gives Zechariah eight visions to encourage, fortify, and rally the people into action. And this is the fourth one. So the scene, as we start to read this, imagine the scene opens in a heavenly courtroom. Imagine a tense courtroom scene. And people's futures are hanging in the balance. Zechariah 3. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand or a burning stick plucked from the fire? Now Joshua is standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. And I Will clothe you with pure vestments. And he said, and I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. Then the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. This is the word of the Lord. And you may be seated. God is the judge. Make no mistake. It's not like a battle, a close call, a battle between two peers. God is sovereign and far above Satan, far above in power and greater in every respect. Before and beneath the judge stand the high priest Joshua and Satan, who stands at Joshua's side, poised to accuse him as the prosecutor in the courtroom. What a powerful accuser Satan is. And with such a powerful accuser, how does Joshua stand a chance? An important, an important point to think about here is that the high priest always represented the people. So when we read this, we need to substitute ourselves in there for Joshua. 
With respect to Satan, people need to think of his main, they tend to think of his main job as being to tempt us to do bad things, but actually accusation is possibly the main problem we have from the forces of darkness. In this vision, Zechariah communicates dramatically, blatantly, that the Israelites were unacceptable before God because of their sin. This idea of being acceptable and righteous has to do with being morally upright, but it also has to do with relationship, being in right relationship with God. And here's the reality. We're all deeply insecure about whether or not we're acceptable. Have you guys ever had that nightmare where you go out and you end up somewhere and you're half-dressed or you forgot all your clothing? It's a horrible thing. Anyway, I listened to a sermon actually on Zechariah 3 by Tim Keller, and he told a story about having these recurring nightmares. But for him, there was the added stress that he would be in the back room of a house and suddenly realize he was naked. And there's a big party going on in the front of the house. And of course, the only way out is like through the front door, through the whole party. So, and people have, many of us have different variations on this nightmare of being an imposter, unacceptable, and found out. Um, I did my master's in piano performance, so I used to do lots of concerts on stage and stuff. And so one of these tormenting nightmares I would have is I'd walk out onto the concert stage, sit down at the piano, and suddenly realize I hadn't practiced or learned any of the pieces that I had to perform, which is horrible, total panic. So we all have a deep need for righteousness and acceptance. We cling to the positive feedback we get from people, and yet we really wonder about those who criticize us. That's because there really is a courtroom and a bar of justice and an accuser, and our conscience is like a radio signal that picks it up loud and clear. There is hope, though, because as we read in Revelation 12, there will come a time when Satan will be thrown down by God and his defeat will be complete. But in the meantime, in our lives, there are lots of things we can do to jam the frequency of our consciences, like distraction, parties, buying stuff, toys, Netflix. But you often see when people are dying, even if they've led a really arrogant life, that they'll have this gnawing regret that somehow they knew they didn't live right. Our guilt isn't just a memory. It's something deep down inside that we know we know we should be perfect and somebody keeps telling us that we're not. The problem with this feeling of accusation is one that comes in seasons. It ebbs and flows. So some of the times that we experience this the loudest are one, when problems come, losing a job, breakups, other troubles. Number two, when we try to speak and represent Christ. Have you ever heard that voice that says, if they only knew who you were, who, what you were really like, what a poor excuse you are. Keep your mouth shut. Or three, prayer. Have you ever heard that voice say, why should God hear you anyway? Or four, when, when we see the weaknesses and the bad things in our hearts. Five, when we fail. You call yourself a Christian? I've heard that voice a lot. Or six, when we're most trying to get close to God. Distractions. Seven, when we have a nagging sin in our lives that we can't overcome. Maybe our spouse or close friends, they might not even talk to us about it because they think it's hopeless. And when we do try to talk to someone about it, the prosecution comes in and says, look at that. If you were a real Christian, you wouldn't continually do that. Or eight, when our minds are experiencing loud thoughts of sin. Or for some of us, it doesn't even come in seasons. It, it just happens constantly. And counselors might say, oh, you have low self-esteem. And that's true, but it's kind of an unhelpful diagnosis. Because low self-esteem means that you just don't see how wonderful you are and you need to be told. The solution is not to tell someone who feels bad they're, that they're great. That's terrible and it doesn't cheer them up. The problem is that the bad stuff is real. 
if someone had just told Joshua, hey man, your clothes aren't that dirty. They're not that bad. Would that have helped him in any way? They were indeed filthy. And here's the crazy thing. In the original language, the word actually means excrement. So basically, he had poo smeared all over his clothes. So gross. Our spiritual problem is much deeper. We have a conscience invented by God to remind us and lead us into repentance, forgiveness, and change. But under the influence of sin, consciences, our consciences, become perverted. Poisoned by sin. Some places they should say, don't do that, and we've numbed them, or friends have. But in other areas, there are false standards that we're trying to live up to. Oftentimes we should do or say something, but we think, don't tell your spouse or friend when you're upset they're doing something. And then Satan really ends up bothering us. Ever since God told Adam and Eve in the garden, obey and you'll live, we still know that's true. And the prosecutor still knows that. And so we live in this uncomfortable tension. So now the question is, what do we do about this? So let's look back to the biblical text for a moment. It says in verse 3 that Joshua was standing before the Lord clothed in filthy garments, dressed with filthy clothes. And again, in the original language, the word actually means excrement. So Joshua was standing there before God in clothes that were covered in excrement. Talk about shame. Who could imagine a priest preparing to lead worship while wearing filthy, desecrated garments? The high priest's garment was incredibly ornate, detailed, and symbolic. It was possibly the most special and exquisite outfit in all of Israel. And yet Joshua stands humiliated before the angel and before the Lord as well, wearing excrement-covered priestly clothing. The language in this passage of scripture communicates something inexcusable and revolting. Zechariah 3.3 presents Joshua as utterly defiled, standing in the Lord's court in an official capacity, a transgressor who came before the Lord completely unworthy by violating Old Testament laws about how priests must conduct their duties. Joshua's shameful, defiled condition contrasts sharply with the holy splendor of the Lord and his heavenly court. Repugnance characterized Joshua's sin and Judah's as well, and ours. Imagine standing before anyone in clothes defiled by excrement. And what I love about this is that God and nobody else ever says, oh, you're not that dirty. Imagine God putting his arm around his poo-smeared clothes. <laughs> Never. You'd prob- you've probably heard an anecdote shared in this church. Extra credit for anybody who can remember who shared it. But it's a memory of a first grader who got in a wrestling match on a grassy lawn outside the school. And as the boys were rolling around, when they got up, they were covered in dog poo. (laughs) So, you know, they went to class. And the teacher, of course, she didn't say just come in and come to class and sit there stinking up the room for all the other kids. She sent them home to shower and to fix their very real problem. And so here in Zechariah chapter 3, nobody makes excuses for this disgusting, awful sin that covers Joshua either. God sees it all and he calls it what it is. And yes, it's awful. But the outrageously wonderful thing is that the result is not condemnation, but cleansing. God sees all of our sin, and he's definitely not telling us it's not so bad. As we imagine this scene, remember to place yourself in Joshua's shoes. You stand before God, and he sees all the sin and brokenness, and he's not saying it's okay. And I'm so glad, because our God is always truth, good, loving, holy, just, and righteous. He's not lying to us or making excuses for us in our sin. And so we shouldn't either, and we don't need to, when we take in the truth of what God does in response. 
Joshua and therefore the people of Judah and therefore us, we have escaped from the just consequences of sin. Selfishness, bad thoughts, words or behavior. We've escaped from what we deserved. God tells Satan to shut up before he even says a word. God forcefully rebukes him saying that he has chosen us. And then God takes off the excrement defiled clothes and replaces them with beautiful festive clothing fit for celebration. God has removed gruesome guilt and replaced it with forgiveness. And he did it because he loves us and he chose us. Here God shows tenderness towards his stuff, his suffering people. And it's important to remember that he looks at you and me with tenderness too. God's response to Satan is because of his relationship with his people. Guys, it's all about our relationship with God too. I wanted to read verse 6 and 7 again. It says, And the Lord, the angel of the Lord, solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. God doesn't just leave us in our sins. He wants us to walk in his ways. And he goes with us, helping us. In other places in the Old Testament, and also in this passage, we see that the angel of the Lord can speak as if he is the Lord. We have an advocate, an angel, Jesus, the high priest. When Jesus led a perfect life and then took the punishment for our sins, dying on the cross, he took away the power, any power, from Satan's ever-present accusations. He took away all our guilt and shame, and he fixed and healed our relationship with God. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 reads, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus says, you can't keep accusing this person because he or she is a stick taken out of the fire, out of the fire of sin. The condemnation of sin is gone. The guilt of sin is gone. Before you're a Christian, sin is there. For example, we lose our temper, we act selfishly, we say things we regret, we're jealous, we're, we gossip, all sorts of terrible things. And this sin is full of pollution and also guilt. And it brings you and me into condemnation before a holy, perfect God. But after you become a Christian, which just means simply accepting Jesus' gift of forgiveness and eternal life, the condemnation is gone. But the pollution is still there. There is still sin in our lives. And so Satan, the accuser, wants to come and say, look, you still get angry. You still think like that or whatever. God cuts you off. You're unacceptable. But no, Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So not only that, this is amazing, but the Lord says, don't only take off the filthy clothes, but put new robes on. So this shows the doctrine of justification by faith. God goes beyond forgiveness of sins. On top of that, your sin's going to Jesus. Jesus' righteousness goes to you and to me. So what does it mean that Jesus is our advocate or defense attorney? Are you imagining him up in heaven? Each time you blow it, Jesus says to God, Oh, come on, Father, just give him one more day, please. No, a defense attorney makes a case. He says, Father, your law demands payment, and the wages of sin is death. You're absolutely right. So here's the payment. Look at my blood. Look at my work. I've made the payment. And it would be completely unjust for you to take two payments. I, having died in his or her place, is finished. God says to Israel and to us, 
I did not choose you because you were the greatest, the best, the largest. I chose you because I love you. Every time you're praying and the prosecution comes in, every time you fail and the prosecution comes in, Every time something bad happens and you think you're being punished, remember. Sometimes the only way to deal with a prosecutor who keeps saying, this is bad, this is bad, you should feel like dirt. Sometimes the only thing to do is repent. Sometimes over what he's saying, but most of all, repent, repent for being discouraged by your sins. You being stuck in a guilt loop prevents how many prayers? How much does it prevent of you loving people? How many godly actions does it prevent? Repent for thinking that your sins are too great for his mercy. God did not give a believer a new heart for it to be torn in pieces with discouragement. Jesus, I repent for refusing to see that you are my righteousness, my advocate. This is the sin that's killing us. The others can't. This sin gives the prosecutor a foothold. When you hear the accuser, you've got to run right into his face and say, listen, it's even worse than you say. I could make a better case than you. But you know, even if I hadn't done this one thing, that wouldn't have made me acceptable to my master. I'm acceptable to Jesus in Jesus alone. The only reason I'm acceptable is because of Jesus. He's my worthiness and my honor. He's taken away all my guilt. We've got to preach the gospel to ourselves. Let's be eager to run to God. We can do this through amazing worship. We aren't afraid and we aren't ashamed. We aren't self-important. We can let down our guard and stop worrying about the dirty clothes. There's a vulnerability and an openness that we can embrace because we're forgiven. Let's pray. God, help us to know this intellectually, but also help us to use the gospel as a platform for our daily lives. Help us to remember, Jesus, that we are clothed in you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So right now, we have a chance to respond. We're going to, actually, the cards are already on, there are little cards on your seats. And I want to give you the opportunity to write down the answer to this question. How is Satan accusing you right now? Is there anything that you've been having a hard time believing God can forgive? Is there some shame that you've been carrying for too long? Is Satan trying to sideline you in some way? For me, working on this sermon the last few weeks, I've had to continually find a set, fight a sense of unworthiness. But the truth is that I'm really not worthy in and of myself. I'm worthy because of the cross. So what's your struggle right now? Holy Spirit, please enlighten us. Give us wisdom. Speak to us and lead us, even right now, Lord. So then we're, gonna, we're inviting you to bring those cards forward down the center aisle and you're going to throw them into the little bucket there. Nobody's going to look at them. After service, we're actually going to carry it out and we're going to burn them in the parking lot and you can join us. So Dara, Pastor Paul, and John are coming up to join me right now in giving you a nail to help you remember that Jesus' death was enough to forgive you and to take away all your shame. And we'll also give you a card with a verse to remind you of the truth, to replace the lies that we believed. Finally, people from the prayer team are going to be spread out around the sanctuary in the lobby, and they would love to pray for and with you. So let's not give the enemy a foothold any longer. Let's not receive his accusation any longer. We're covered by the blood of Jesus. Jesus took our sins upon himself, and he gave us his righteousness, and that's what God sees. We're forgiven, so let's live in that freedom. Mm. So again, write down how Satan's accusing you right now. 
repent and receive forgiveness and then come forward and put the paper in the bucket and receive the nail and the verses and prayer God bless you have this extended response time so don't feel pressured with time we're going to sing a couple songs as you are doing this and uh, if you'd like to receive prayer before um, bringing your shame card that's fine if you want to receive prayer after uh, bringing your shame card that's fine too just use the next 10 to 12 minutes 15 minutes for uh, just being with the lord and Make, uh, take advantage of that prayer team who's standing in the back. They have lanyards. Um, you can pray with them. Whatever it is, however little or however big of a thing you want to share. Or if you just want to receive prayer or just uh, pray with them even uh, for Thanksgiving or whatever it might be. So.
verse 2 here with the, with the congregation. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died time to keep responding and we can respond in prayer again the prayer team is uh, back there available for you to um, to, to use you know, we are the body of Christ the royal priesthood collectively so um, God, Jesus is our mediator and we can also mediate for one another so feel free to do that we're going to keep singing as we do that Ch 
there's nothing. about the accusation of the enemy, uh, like stale air, like heavy air that just sits on a community, that sits on us as individuals, and how freeing that the work of Christ just blows that away, a fresh wind that comes in and just brings newness and joy. And, and would, I'm praying and I'm, I'm asking the Lord that this would be a freshness in your life today that those accusations could be blown away, that in our community there would be a freshness, that those accusations could be blown away. And by that, I don't mean we don't face sin, and we don't talk about hard things, and we don't deal with hard things. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about we do that all. In fact, we do it more in the context of grace and forgiveness. Grace. 